Hello, and welcome to Kinetic Conversations with the Fort Wayne Ballet. I'm Jim Sparrow, and as you probably know, in the ballet world, we're heading into the season of the Nutcracker. Looking back over the years that we have been doing this podcast, we've had a number of interesting discussions on this holiday masterwork. So today, we wanted to do a compilation from past podcasts and relive some of those anecdotes and perspectives on Tchaikovsky's classic, The Nutcracker. To begin, let's go back to 2019 and a discussion with artistic director Karen Gibbons-Brown about the history of this holiday favorite. Let's start off with a little bit of history about the Nutcracker. Talk a little bit about its inception and how it was received at the beginning. The ballet was choreographed by a man named Marius Petipa and his assistant, Lev Ivanov. Petipa was French, but considered the father of Russian ballet. And by the Tsar's request, he was required to create a new work every year. So this particular year was the year of the Nutcracker, and he worked with Tchaikovsky, the composer, to create a score. And he'd worked with Tchaikovsky before. This was the last work that they did together. And he had the story, the libretto, was taken from a story by E.T.A. Hoffman, The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. So the libretto was written by a Frenchman, Dumas, and they decided that they would only take a portion of the libretto and make it a fun story for children and for the audiences, as opposed to the more dark side that the story tends to be. So they created this ballet, and Petipa's new gimmick that year was using children to do children's parts. That was novel for the ballet world and was not successful. And in fact, it was such a disaster, people really didn't want to see the ballet again. Sadly, Tchaikovsky died the following year in 1893 and never knew that his ballet had become a success at all. The ballet took a little hiatus. What we most know or knew for periods of time in the world about the Nutcracker was the Nutcracker Suite, that part of Act Two that you see that we call the divertissement that really have nothing to do with the story at all was the most popular part of the Nutcracker that you would hear in concert. Dancers would dance parts of it at Christmas time. But although it premiered at Christmas time in Russia, it was not really a ballet just for Christmas. So you can be in Europe and see the Nutcracker in March. We just happened to do it in America at Christmas time. The first full-length production of the Nutcracker in America was in 1944 by the San Francisco Ballet. Pretty successful. And Christensen, the choreographer of the ballet at that point in time, resourced both George Balanchine and Alexandra Danilova, who had been in the original production of The Nutcracker in Russia. And Christensen created his own. And then 10 years later, Balanchine decided he wanted to create what he remembered about his childhood in Russia. So he created one that we now know as one of the most popular ones in the world. So let's pick that apart for just a second. When we talk about the lack of success when it was premiered, largely because of the addition of children and elements which we think of as sort of instrumental today. Charming. Why do you think that was such a problem? And then how do we get to a place where perhaps it's thought of differently? Some companies still use adults to do the children's parts. It's becoming less popular, but there was that period of time where they did. When you work with children, it's unpredictable, <laughs> as, as you well know. So I think that uh, originally it was something that was considered less than professional. And the ballet was at a state in Russia where it was considered a jewel of the country. So when you put children in the ballet, it wasn't quite the same from the czar's perspective, the professional quality that they were looking for. The other criticism that I read about was the lack of adherence to the original libretto, that he didn't completely adhere to the story when he was putting the first ballet together. And the story is pretty dark. Yes. So what would your response be to that? I think part of the longevity of Nutcracker is because Petipa had that foresight. 
when he created it. Nutcracker is the ballet, the Nutcracker, is one that is for the children and the young at heart. And it touches everybody in a special way. It's become a tradition and a memory, but it's the one thing that you can go to at any time, and it's escapism. There's nothing harsh about it. There's nothing awful about it. The first story was written, as I said, by E.T.A. Hoffman, who we also know wrote the story of Colpelia, which is another ballet that most companies do around the world. And E.T.A. Hoffman was an amazing storyteller, and his stories always had a moral. And the moral of this story was that darkness and evil can surround a child at every point and every turn in their life as they grow. But through love and pureness of heart and truth and trust, those evils can be overcome. And that was written in 1830. It's still very pertinent in today's world, and it's a story that doesn't die, and I think that's a part of why it has such longevity. I want to point out one thing about the Nutcracker. Did you know Nutcrackers? The actual Nutcracker is considered a symbol of good faith and fortune. No, I didn't. They're supposed to guard your home from the evil that might surround you. Again, ties right into the story that E.T.A. Hoffman wrote. Well, and I think that those sub-stories make it very interesting for somebody who's really willing to dig in. I am fascinated that one of the things that people will go to regularly at the holiday season, whether they know anything at all uh, about ballet, it might be the Nutcracker, like they might do with a variety of other things that are very tradition-based. And it's a benefit to American ballet companies because there is that. I love Nutcracker. I think it is magical, and I watch it from the audience every single performance, and I still feel that. The Nutcracker is iconic worldwide for its instantly recognizable music. Back in 2021, Caleb Young from the Fort Wayne Philharmonic stopped by to discuss with Karen the music of Tchaikovsky and gave us several insights into the symphonic aspects of directing the Nutcracker. Talk a little bit more about Petapa. You talked about the involvement. Talk a little more about how this really came to be in terms of of this interaction, this is a big change in terms of the way ballets are created. What's different about this? Well, I just want to speak, and maybe we can bounce ideas off each other about the difficulty of the choreography, you know, maybe something like Aurora. This music by Tchaikovsky is devilishly difficult, and I think it can be reflected in the choreography. We forget, you know, each year we play Nutcracker. We do maybe something like Sleeping Beauty or Swan Lake, but this music down in the pit is not to be underestimated. And there are orchestras that are not as familiar with this repertoire. Like take in Germany, for example, they perform Nutcracker in the summer mm-hmm. because they don't have it associated with the same storyline. And you see these famous orchestras doing interviews and saying, we underestimated this music. We don't play it every year. We're not a pit orchestra. And it's one thing to play the suite, like I had mentioned, where you're pulling excerpts from the second act and it's just a bunch of character dances. But when you play it cover to cover, it's not to be underestimated. I remember when I was in grad school, my conducting professor used to say, Caleb, you're not a real conductor until you've conducted Walls of the Snowflakes. Then you, <laughs> then you can be a real conductor. And I, I have to say, each year I conduct you know, 40, 50 shows, and that five or six minutes worth of music is the most difficult conducting I do, hands down, all season. Wow, interesting. It, it takes every single ounce of my bandwidth to keep the ship on or the train on the rails. Let alone, you know, conducting choirs in the balcony and trying to watch the dance. And so, yeah. I think from the dancer's perspective, I've been fortunate enough in my career to have danced all these ballets. And Sleeping Beauty is what we call the benchmark ballet. In other words, it has many children in the ballet, not necessarily as lead roles, of course, all the way up to the principal roles of the ballet, the prince and princess Aurora. And it is one of the most difficult ballets to perform at every level. 
Ironically, as we're in rehearsal, I'm talking about the difficulty of that with the dancers because it's very pure. If you don't have a clean and pure technique, it does not play. So nowadays, you tend to see lots of turns or high jumps or lots of gimmicks, so to speak. But in this ballet, the gimmicks don't work. It has hmm. to be very pure and very clean and pristine, I guess. And then the artistry comes on top of that technique. Nutcracker is fun. We all see it. Interesting to hear it's so difficult to play. And when you said just the suite with just character dances, that in itself was quite a revelation in its day because Petipa traveled around the world at that point in time and brought these folk dances from other countries to present to Russia. And this is what we think, as close as we know, they looked like for the audiences. And then, of course, you have Swan Lake, which was first presented and was a miserable failure. Hmm. It was not successful at all, and they tucked it away and didn't do it for years and years until after, actually, Tchaikovsky had passed and they planned a memorial service and revived Acts 2 and 4. And people went, what? Why have we hidden this ballet all these years? So they've each enjoyed a special life. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about how much secrecy and just mystique is around, even Nutcracker. I mean, Tchaikovsky, the famous story about him hearing the celeste at the, mm. at the World Fair in Paris and being so entranced by the instrument, and having it shipped back home secretly. Yes. Anyone, anyone wants to hear this beautiful instrument. And we take these, these revolutionary acts by Tchaikovsky for granted in a right. way. Right. Oh, it's Nutcracker season again. Let's play this music. But this music for me, admittedly so, I, I really missed Nutcracker this year. I mean, this, that was the thing that kind of tore my heart up the most is not being in the pit. And let me ask you, Karen, do you find that dancers really enjoy these three ballets from a dancing standpoint? Because musicians love playing this music. Yes, I think they do. I think people hear, the dancers hear the first strains of the overture of Nutcracker and say, oh my gosh, again. <laughs> but the first year they never dance Nutcracker again, like when they retire, they realize how special it's been. The other ballets aren't presented as regularly, so they each bring different... Um, Swan Lake is a mammoth ballet oh, yeah. to put on stage. And the coaching that has to go into the very different movements, the very different arm movements is quite a study into itself. But um, Sleeping Beauty is just this beautiful, lush, rich ballet that you can't help but get wrapped in the music, whether you're wrapped in the choreography or not. But it's a fun story. All people know it. It's nothing secret about it. So it's easy to understand. And when it's well done, it is spectacular. Well, let me ask you, how do you, and Jim, I, I hate I'm jumping in here so much, but because <laughs> I'm just curious, um, how do you go from two and a half hours down to an hour? Because I listened to the full ballet the other day. Uh, I thought, man, I can't imagine cutting any of this music. It's right. all so amazing. So it is. what is that like? And even when we present the full length here, we cut it somewhat to fit it within the constraints mm -hmm. of what we need to present with the community as a collaboration with the orchestra. It is difficult, but when you remember, for instance, in Nutcracker, the snow potida, just before the snowflakes that you mentioned, that was originally written as a scene change. Oh, wow. It wasn't a potida at all. So the curtain closed and all the crash, bang, boom music you hear is covering up the noise of things moving backstage really? because they didn't have the same capabilities technologically that we have today. So a lot of the music written for Sleeping Beauty as well, we have that scene called the panorama mm. and it's the lilac fairy sailing with the prince taking him to the sleeping princess. But it's very difficult in smaller theaters to have the sailing boat, similar to what you'd see in Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. 
it's very difficult in many of theaters, especially with the stage space, you have to sacrifice. Do we keep the space to dance or do we use the space for the production elements that may or may not play and really doesn't further the story? So Interesting. we have a lot of that music that we've streamlined a bit for that. It just breaks my heart a little bit. Every time I go to a concert and I see these pieces presented on a symphonic series and they've trimmed it down to 45 mm -hmm. minutes, it just crushes my soul because mm -hmm. it's just such good music. Well, nowadays, when you see Nutcracker, for instance, how can you not see the snow pot at all? Oh, Why God. was that written for a scene change? Absolutely. But they didn't have another way to do it. Mm -hmm. And for the stream of the story, they just kept the music playing, the curtain came down, and in that very big, grand section in the end of the Padada, Clara and the Nutcracker Prince simply walk across the stage in a spotlight. And you'll find a few companies that still hmm. present it that way today. And the audience just goes crazy because the music is so grand and all they're doing is simple walks. But it's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Well, and I wonder, too, when you talk about these suites, looking at it from a practical standpoint, how much of this is a composer's repackaging so they can make more money? Mm. Because while you're completely right, you can't put a two-and-a-half-hour performance on stage all the time. People get, But thinking practically, if I write this music, whether I'm Stravinsky or Tchaikovsky or whomever, if I repackage this in ways that orchestras would play it or would be able to do it in a way that I could say that it's slightly different, it gives me a, an interesting way to, to continue to make money off of my ideas. So I wonder, too, when we talked a little bit about the creation of the integration of the creation, we talk about the ballet russe ballets, which, you know, the artist and the choreographer and the musicians are all working together to put a product together. Is that how this one was put together? You talked about Petapa and Tchaikovsky. How did this one actually work? I'm not sure it was quite the same collaboration that we envisioned from the Diaghilev days. I, the story is that Petipa would work out the choreography on his dining room table with objects that he moved around to create the patterning. So in Waltz of the Flowers, of course, the real supporters of the ballet that loved it were the audiences that could sit in the back of the house. The royalty always came because they must and they appreciated it. But the real audience, you know, the fan club, so to speak, was in the back. And if you see Waltz of the Flowers from the top, it's swirling flowers, swirling mm. patterns, like mm. flowers on a gentle breeze. And ours is actually that. You just don't get that from our specific theater. But I don't think it was the same kind of collaboration. The story is that Petipa would say, I need 64 counts of march music, and then I need a gong to hit here, and that's what's going to happen at the gong. And I don't think it was quite the... Yeah. You might have a different perspective, No, I, that's, that's my understanding of it as well. But Jim, I think you make a good point about composers needing to make a living. Their music, in a way, becomes functional when they do arrange it from these suites and they, they arrange it for forehand piano. I hate to change the composer uh, narrative here, but I've been kind of revisiting Appalachian Spring a lot these mm. days. And <laughs> it's the same thing. You know, it's a suite that everybody plays in the concert hall. But now we're having this kind of renaissance of the full ballet. And I, I just looked yesterday, actually, and the publisher who's raking in the cash for the Copeland Foundation and the Martha Gamm Fund is pushing the full ballet these days. So I'm wondering if we're going to start seeing a shift in these Tchaikovsky ballets. That I don't know. You know, they're, for us, they're public domain. Mm -hmm. The choreography, it's not protected by trusts, etc. in the same way that something more like Martha's Ballet or Appalachian Spring so I think it gives a different opening for many companies to do different things, but they're harder to do because of the grandiose nature of the piece. I think what's really fascinating is that these three ballets that we're presenting sections of were all choreographed within five years of each other. Wow. Can you imagine? Five years, he created all three of these big, and they're four-act ballets generally. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm always so blown away by your creative process. I, I come see your performances and when you present new pieces, I'm like, man, I can't imagine setting this. This is such a different... Because I'm literally studying dusty music that was written 200 years ago. So not much, you know, there might be a little bit of interpretive mm -hmm. flair there, but you're literally creating new art, which mm -hmm. is so inspiring in a way. Thank you. I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but I think also in the ballet russe time period or the Diaghilev time period, the ballets weren't four acts anymore. Right. They were more right. repertoire shorter, right. So instead of one night of a four-act ballet, I know Nutcrackers too, but yeah. four acts of Sleeping Beauty, you would go see three different ballets in one evening. So we're going to do Petrushka, Firebird, Rite of Spring, right? <laughs> Why not? You just talk to those trust folks about that, Let's right? do it. I'll make go. a phone call. <laughs> there you go. See how that works for us. All right. <laughs> and finally, we revisit our look at the Nutcracker as a distinctly American holiday tradition. Karen and I discussed the meteoric revival of the ballet on the other side of the globe from where it began. People told Petipa, the choreographer, that he was crazy because as he was, well, he might have been, but... <laughs> yeah. He's an artist, were, so there right, you go. Exactly, but thank you very much. But as he was creating this libretto, his intent was to have children play the important roles in the ballet, which makes sense when you hear of Hoffman's main theme for the ballet. So he cast children as Clara, or Marie, as she was called in the original story, and you'll sometimes see versions of that. And then the Nutcracker and some of the other roles, the party children were played by children. And they were children in the academy in Russia. But it was not normal for children to take on such important and lengthy roles in a ballet. We know the full length, but the full length is relatively recent. There's a lot of things that, in terms of becoming such commonplace. But when you look at the music, the Nutcracker suite was actually something people were very familiar with because it was packaged in a way that that was what people were familiar with, but they didn't know the full length in, in America. And Tchaikovsky actually premiered the suite before he premiered the full length because he had it prepared and inserted it during a concert where he had a piece that wasn't ready and didn't like. So it got premiered before, which is so unusual based on the way that usually works. So the first full staging outside of Russia happens, and what happens at that point? After it did not have great success in Russia, it sort of got buried, didn't come out very often. And the Ballet Russe, which is a ballet company composed primarily of Russians, took the suite on tour. So to familiarize yourself with the suite, you can watch Walt Disney's Fantasia, which is what we all knew for so long. In 1944, William Christensen, who was the director of the San Francisco Ballet, thought this would be wonderful for his company to do. So he presented the full length, The Nutcracker, and that was the first time it had been seen on American soil. Well, and to your point, when you look at people would have heard it in Fantasia, 1939, 1940, they used the suite, but it hadn't been staged as the full-length ballet here in the United States. We may not think of that now when your child listens to Fantasia, but the suite was popular and familiar, and that was why he used it. So it gets staged in San Francisco in 1944, and so how does it begin to go from being staged in San Francisco to becoming what everybody does? What everybody knows now. Well, San Francisco Ballet, again, was the first company to do the full length, and they continue to do it today. They reinvent it every so often, but they still do the full length Nutcracker. In 1954, George Balanchine, who was from Russia originally, was in charge of the New York City Ballet and wanted to bring a bit of the Christmas as he remembered it in Russia and the ballet as he remembered it from his childhood to America. So in 1954, he staged his version of the Nutcracker on New York City Ballet. And the rest, they say, is history. It became hugely popular. 
So we went from the West Coast all the way over to the East Coast. Didn't take off quite the same way on the West Coast as it has now, but now everybody does it. Companies all over the world tend to do it now at holiday time. But again, in Europe, they may do it in March. So one of the things that you know I think is interesting, it's such an iconic thing for so many people in terms of the music and the characters and, and all of this, but as in any type of art or any situation, you don't know what it's ultimately going to be. So you have working things. I, I was reading that you know they had the working title as the Christmas tree or the fir tree because that's an essential part of the story. Right. But it's also a very German-focused tradition, as many of these things are. Ultimately, they settled on the Nutcracker. Do you know why they settled on the Nutcracker as opposed to stay with that? I, I never discovered what that well, after it became the Christmas tree, it actually became the Nutcracker and the Mouse King. They thought perhaps going back to the original would work. And as this evolved, the part of the Nutcracker plays a primary role in Clara's dream. Or maybe it's not a dream. That's always the question. Or the magical evening that Clara has. So it just has become the Nutcracker. And it's been that since it was premiered in 1944. Some of the other trivia about Tchaikovsky and the music, there's some interesting elements there that no one had heard before. So right. the Sugar Plum Fairy, you used the celeste, which was a brand new instrument and nobody had heard it. And that story of hearing it in Paris and, and wanting to be the first to use the instrument and sneaking it around and trying to do this before Rimsky-Korsakov and Glazunov and other composers got it. It's kind of an interesting thing, but we don't think about it now. It's extremely iconic in terms of that music it's, it, you hear it and you know exactly what it is. The twinkling bells on right. her arrival in Candyland. Well, and the other story, um, when you do the grand pas with the sugar plum and the cavalier, it's basically a scale. Right. I mean, the melody is a scale. <laughs> and looking around, what I dug up was that Tchaikovsky had a friend who he was not thrilled about writing this and <laughs> challenged him, can you write a melody out of a scale, ascending or descending, but in sequence, you can't change the order. It has to be a scale. Can you do that? And he did. It's what we hear all the time, but you don't think about, it's just a scale. That's all Iconic, it is. Iconic, isn't it? <laughs> but it's, again, I'm thinking, okay, so I'm not particularly thrilled about writing this thing. I need a little challenge. Gives me something that I can be clever with. And now you think about it and it becomes iconic, but really all you used was a scale. So I'm, I'm curious too, how these things evolve from basically being, they're not that special, but they become special. And why do you think they become special in that there's nothing about them necessarily that's super creative at the beginning, but they become something more. Well, actually, Petipoth was very creative in his works in that he would present some unusual thing in each of the ballets every time he choreographed something. And again, he was choreographing about a ballet a year. So that's a lot of creativity that he had to think through. Now, when we see it, we don't think it's so unusual. It's pretty common because that's how you've seen the ballet for so long. But the original thing in this ballet was children playing children's roles. He also loved to travel and traveled around Europe and brought back what he thought were the representations of the delicacies of the day. So you have Spanish hot chocolate and Arabian coffee and Chinese tea, etc. So that was representative to a country who couldn't necessarily get on the internet or get on the nearest train to travel to these countries. It was a little taste of the rest of Europe. And I think that held a lot of value for a long time for people. Now when you see Nutcracker, it morphs into what each community needs it to be. So it may not quite be represented that way. As we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, 
it really has become an American staple. And as such, it has the staying power in the United States. It doesn't have the same sort of intensity or frequency or even impact in other parts of the world that do do ballet. But America has also, as you alluded to, not only made small changes to the story or to the way it's presented based on the community it's in, but probably new productions and new retellings of the story that are quite different because it's become almost Americanized in the sense of being part of our lexicon. So what other notable changes, you know, you mentioned Balanchine in the 54, sort of started things. Well, what maybe has happened since then, maybe that's taken it into other directions? There was a big movement in the 1980s to make it very much a part of your personal community. So there is a place well-known for jazz, and Duke Ellington took the score And although he created some new works to go with it, he jazzified it. So there is a jazz version and they use jazz and tap in the choreography. There is another place that's known for its bourbon. And they made the whole first scene, the party scene, a big bourbon party. So people have adjusted it based on their community. Personally, in our Nutcracker, it's based on the original story and the intent And again, the magic of the season and the magic of wonderment at that time. So it takes on the artistic director's vision. What other things do we not know about the Nutcracker that we need to know about? This is sort of like a trivia party. So I'm curious, is there anything we've left out? Oh, I'm sure there is. Um, The first Sugar Plum Fairy was actually an Italian dancer that came to Russia to perform under a French choreographer. So already a bit worldly in its day and time. At that point in time, men didn't really lift women very much, which is a part of why the snow potida has more lifts in it, more spectacular feats in it than the sugar plum fairy. The choreography is more new to the particular productions that are going on. In our version, you know that it snows not only on stage, which it did in the original production, they used to use soap flakes to snow on the audience. And that became treacherous for the dancers because it was slick. So they no longer use soap flakes for snow. It's, a, it's an injury waiting to happen. We also have it snowing on our audience. And I know of only one other production that does that at this point in time. And it becomes an opportunity for each community to involve its community in the production. So here in Fort Wayne, we include Fort Wayne Animal Care and Control and are actually expanding that collaboration to include Humane Fort Wayne. So it really becomes a community party. Well, and to that point, thinking through other communities who have a ballet company or who have done just what you described, including the community, this is one of the productions that, and we're lucky enough to do it here. We have the Fort Wayne Philharmonic with us for the entire first weekend. Lucky. Um, Normally we have, you know, involvement with the children's choir and with animal care and control and various other elements. This seems to be one of those ballets that if a community's only going to do one that's done with all the forces, this seems to be the one that they try to pull all the pieces together. It is. It's oftentimes people's first entrance to dance. And I think that a part of why it does have the staying power is it's always new and bright and happy. This has been Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. Fort Wayne Ballet's The Nutcracker opens for this season Friday, December 1st and runs through Sunday, December 10th at the Arch United Center. For tickets, please visit our website, fortwayneballet.org, or call the box office at 422-4226. 
Kinetic Conversations is brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and Wayne Shaw Productions. If you'd like to receive notifications on future podcasts, please like the podcast and go to fortwayneballet.org to sign up for notifications on performances, podcasts, and more ballet news. You will also find a library of past episodes on our website in the menu of options. Until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. has been a Wayne Shout production. Wayne Shout.